0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander and as always I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden of the University of Johannesburg Center for African Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Good afternoon Kobus good afternoon well we have three topics as always for you on the show we're going to go first to the united states where the leading u.s congressman or senator uh on china africa u.s relations really came out last week with a plea for the united states to get in the game so we'll talk about chris coons and a report that he issued with his six call to arms six call to arms for the united states and uh, to engage in africa before it is too late also uh a a, a, just an amazingly well-written report by, uh, by Madison Condon. We'll talk about, we'll introduce you to Madison Condon. And uh, she wrote a report. She's, a, I think, a master's student. Is that correct, Kobus? I think she's a PhD candidate. PhD candidate, okay, and she was on her way to the OECD, Uh, but anyway, she wrote this report on how China's unconditional aid and non-interventionist policy is complicating the Western aid agenda in Africa, and it really is mind-blowingly good, and we'll kind of talk about that. And finally, we're going to talk about Zimbabwe's blood diamond jet and the mysterious case of a man by the name of Xu Jinghua. I think you're going to want to hear about this one. It is a, a a little bit of mystery that we're putting into the show. Uh, and so, uh, is the horn behind you, everything okay back there in, in Johannesburg today? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Um, before we get started, I want to kind of bring your attention to, uh, three very quick bullet points. Um, Yen Hai-Rong and Barry Sotman, two professors from Hong Kong uh, who are some of the leading researchers on Chinese mining in Zambia, um, did – listen, I'm, I, I sometimes use some abrasive language on the show and I'll use it today – did nothing short of a bitch slap to, to Human Rights Watch uh, and came out with a, a rebuttal to what they claim Human Rights Watch did shoddy research again. Not for the, on, This is, I think, the second time they're actually accusing uh, HRW of doing uh, shoddy research in in the case of Zambia Mines. They have now published their report on uh, on Pembazooka. Uh, Kobus, just before we get started, we've talked about this issue. We're not going to go into it in a lot of detail today. I just wanted to get your reaction on the the, the Yen Saltman kind of rebuttal that they finally published. You know, they talked about it in some of our academic circles, but now they actually published it on Pembazooka. We've published a link to it on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. What was your impression of their uh, of their rebuttal,
1: yeah, man. When when academics come out and they really
0: take someone down, they, it's, it can be pretty pretty impressive it, spectacle. It, it really, <laughs> when the claws came out. I mean, it, it's fun. I mean, it's like a little cat fight, you know.
1: <laughs> so they were—they were, their main point was that Human Rights Watch completely ignored what other countries' mines, mining companies are doing in Zambia. And they, they made the point that um, they, they made the Chinese companies look particularly bad, while the Chinese companies frequently follow the same kind of labor standards as Swiss and Australian and other companies in Zambia. And that because they didn't put it in context, what it actually comes down to is, is distorted and shoddy reporting.
0: Now, and, and they, one line from their report, and I just love the language that they use. I mean, they don't mince words here. U.S.-based HRW has adopted the arrogant approach of U.S. political elites in refusing to acknowledge that anything is wrong with its report on Chinese copper mining in Zambia our findings show that all foreign-owned mining houses are exploiters of Zambian workers and Zambian resources. But CNMC is neither the worst abuser nor the super exploiter. I mean, they don't mince words. So this is a fascinating debate. Um, I tend to come down on the side of Sotman and Yen on this because uh, I've never been a big fan of Human Rights Watch and, uh, and Amnesty for the type of reporting that they do. Also, I question a lot of the academic credentials of the people that they use for a lot of their reports and the methodology. And that's the case Case that they're going after in this. So it's a fascinating debate. We'd love for you to share your comments uh, on our Facebook page about this. Again, a link is been, has been posted. And uh, tell us what you think. Where do you come down on the issue of Zambian and Chinese mines and whatnot? So let's talk about that. Also, uh, I just before uh, we go too much farther in, I really want to give a shout out to the China-Africa Project's uh, Tendai Musakwa, who this week uh, did a, a really a great interview with uh, Deborah Baudigam. And if you're not familiar with Deborah She is the reigning queen of Sino-Africa research. Um, She is at the Johns Hopkins University, um, and she's written a book. Uh, She's got a great blog on it, but she really is one of the leading thinkers on on China-Africa relations. She travels all over the world. Um, And uh, he did a nice kind of, you know, behind-the-scenes interview with her about how she's done her research and what she's done. Now, Cobus, what I find so interesting about this is that we posted the link uh, to that interview on our Facebook page, and the reaction it got was one that I think is very interesting. Uh, let, me, let me kind of direct and pull up a couple comments here so that you can uh, – I wanted to get your feedback on it because it prompted a, a number of people to talk about whether or not white people uh, really are the best pe- qualified people to be talking about Africa. So one of our, uh, our more active members of our Facebook community, Ferdinand, uh, he says – and let me quote here – how many Africans are interviewed on China-U.S. relations, on China-Europe relationship? But why should we see white people when it comes to Africa-China relationship? He goes on to say, I like this page, that's our China-Africa project page, because of Africa-China relationship, not because we can still see white people interview. Otherwise, I can look elsewhere for that. So we need to see more Africans and Chinese involved, not white people. So this is obviously an interesting topic. I'm white. You're white. And so I wanted to get your opinion on whether or not, uh, is there any merit to that argument? Because on our Facebook page, a number of people came out and said it's complete garbage. But I wanted to get your, your thoughts on it.
1: Well, I think, in the first place, you know kind of we in, in, in getting the guests and getting the kind of discussions that we do, we always try and aim for the widest amount of different kinds of people um, and because of China Africa relationships, uh, a lot of those would be would be chinese and africans and we've we've interviewed many, many Chinese and many Africans over you know since since we've started um, at the same time, China African relations is an international field, and particularly when you're talking about about academia you know kind of this is this is a field that's it's a very it 's a burgeoning and very hot field that that is being studied in all kinds of centers um, among others by a lot of Chinese and Africans who are working in the u s or you've been working in europe um, so you know kind of i think it's just the, the, when, when you start talking about that, that only Africans are, are allowed to talk about Africa, then you pretty much remove Africa from the world conversation.
0: A, if, yeah.
1: Africa is, if Africa is important to the world, then everyone has the right to talk
0: about it. It's a complete bogus argument in my view, and it's this reverse racism type of thing, this idea that, okay, so if I'm an American, I can only talk about America. And if you're an African, you can only talk about Africa. And I don't even know what African in that context means. If you're a Zambian, can you talk about Ethiopia? I mean, is it a racial thing? That's why it gets really bogged down very quickly. But think about what he's saying. And this is why, you know, is that he's saying that, you know, if you are in, let's, you know, Kobus, let's go right to you. You know, you are a white South African. And we've had people on our Facebook page say that you are not African. And this is this weird racial identity question that we have talked about a number of times on the show and that really is going to come up again and again in many African societies, in part because of the presence of new minorities, the Chinese being one of them. Uh, But think about it. So... You know, President Barack Hussein Obama. uh, You know, second generation immigrant of Kenyan parents. um, Wait, he's not really authentically American, so he can't talk about or me. You know, being the the the, the child of of German immigrants and whatnot. I can only talk about what my my ancestry kind of allows me to, and that's why I think that really at the end of the day, what we should be judged on. Cobus, you, me, everybody else who participates at least on this. Project in this program is just the quality of our ideas, period. If yeah. You, if you don't like and it, then that's fine. But it's not because of our race.
1: Yes, yes, and you know what? You know, in in South Africa, um, you've seen a lot over the since the end of apartheid. A lot of a lot of white South Africans go. They they. Have this kind of weird, almost hysterical response where they keep insisting, uh, you know, how incredibly African they are, simply because that is obviously it's uh, it's how they are judged, you know, in South Africa. Um, And for me, you know, my family has been in South Africa since. Uh, since about the 1700s, we've been here for about. My, my dad has done a lot of research on my family history, and we've been in, in um, South Africa for 13 generations. And I tend to not insist very much on my Africanness because I value hybridity. I have a I have a hybrid identity, um, not only because you know kind of because a lot of my um, my background is Western, but also because I spend a lot of time in Asia, and um, you know kind of I'm in a relationship. With a Japanese person, and you know, we we speak Japanese, and you know, I, I like being hybrid. Um, that said, I mean, I don't think being hybrid disqualifies me from speaking. You know, kind of, I want to talk. <laughs> You know, so I'm going
0: to. Well, I think maybe what Ferdinand is, is channeling here, and, and there is some legitimacy to this, is again the negative narratives that we've talked about, particularly the media coverage. Um, and this is something that is legitimately worthy of criticism. And that's something that, you know, the Western press and, and even Western academia for a long time has framed Africa and framed China and continues to do so today in these very narrow intellectual spectrums so that, um, you know, they're relying heavily on anti ideas and antiquated archetypes of African, Africans, individual, you know, African communities, ethnicities, tribes, as well as the Chinese as well. So I think in some ways there's a a blending of that and a frustration with that narrative. And here we are as as white people talking about it and we're kind of getting thrown into that. So if that's in fact the case, I understand it, but I reject it and I think it's a bogus argument. At the end of the day, you should, you the audience, uh, should judge us entirely on the quality of our ideas and if you don't like then and just because We're white then you know we can't do anything about that so what are we going to do but we do and but one of the challenges too about uh booking chinese on the show and this is something we've come up with uh with he Wenping and some of the other guests that we've had is some of the most knowledgeable people in china africa relations are also unfortunately not the best english speakers and so it does limit our ability to have chinese guests in part because when we connect on skype and by phone particularly from china where skype is something in the internet is a little bit of of an iffy thing at times because of the Great Firewall, um, it does add a complication to it. So um, so I just wanted to get your take on that, Kobus. Now let's get on to, uh, to our first topic of the day. Uh, Chris Coons, and he's somebody we've talked about a couple of different times on the show. He came out with an 18-page report, six uh, recommendations called Embracing Africa's Economic Potential, and really what he did was last week he, he he kind of, you know, issued a call to arms. He had this press conference with the Kenyan ambassador to the United States. Uh, he also brought in the, the vice president for African affairs at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And he brought in Stephen Hayes of the Corporate Council in Africa. So some big names inside the beltway in Washington to say the U.S. really has to get in the game in Africa or else it's going to be left behind. So before I give the six recommendations, Kobus, tell me a little bit about – You know, you you know, Coons is a very interesting guy and it's a senator from Delaware, um, I tend to think that he's kind of speaking into the wind. I know our good friend Winslow Robertson, who's uh, you know a fellow blogger and, and Twitter, who's an, un, you know in my view an unadulterated admirer of the United States and the U.S. can do no wrong. He will tell you that, uh, and, and, the, and supporters of the United States will tell you that the U.S. actually has a compelling policy. Um, I don't think it does. Um, I think the Chinese policy is a far more engaging one and whatever the Chinese policy is. But do you think Christopher Coons will be successful? in rousing the American eagle to finally recognize that Africa is a place where you can make money and needs to be engaged beyond, you know, humanitarian crises and uh, military.
1: You know, I think um, if one is optimistic about this, then I think, you know, this might be a time to be optimistic in the sense that obviously the U.S. The US economy is flat. Um, there is a need for new approaches. Um, at the same time, China is rising in Africa, and, you know, I think there is a slowly growing awareness that China is rising in Africa. Um, so this might be the time. You know, kind of. I think it's also bolstered by the fact that the, the proposals that he's actually putting forward doesn't require a lot of extra spending, so it's you know it's possible for you know kind of to sell it on the sense that it's not going, to, for example, Im, you know increase the U.S. Um, de- you know budget deficit. Um, so you know it you know it he might you know it, this might be a good time to kind of to raise
0: this issue. Okay, well let let's let me go through the six recommendations that he put forward in his uh, in his report. I'm going to be posting links to the report, and you can actually download the report on our website this week. So we'll have that in the show page. Uh, But let's start. uh, Point number one, support African-led efforts to improve the business climate on the continent and remove barriers to trade you know, that to me is just so soft. I mean, what the hell? Support African-led efforts to improve the business climate. You know, it just it, it lacks any kind of specificity in my view. Number two, reauthorize and strengthen the African Growth and Opportunity Act well in advance of its 2015 expiration. So that's been an issue, uh, Cobus is the AGOA Act, which is the African Growth and Opportunity Act. That allows for, for uh, thousands of products to come into the United States uh, without any tar- t- uh, tariffs or duty. But... There's been a lot of debate in Congress about whether or not they should re- renew it in advance, and there's been concern that Congress will not re- renew it in advance. Tell us how important you think this uh, the AGOA is, is for the U.S. strategy in Africa.
1: It's difficult to say that it's necessarily... That's important because eighty eight percent of imports you know coming into the U, into the US under Agoa is just oil. Um, you know, kind of oil from Nigeria and Angola. So it's it's difficult for me to say that, that Agoa as an act is necessarily widening the base of, of, of US Africa business.
0: Okay, that's very um, interesting. You know, so, yeah. That's an interesting point. Um, you know, and if you look at the vast majority of U.S. and China trade in Africa, the vast overwhelming majority of it is oil. One of the things that we're seeing, and I got into a Twitter debate with Winslow Robertson this week on this, was one of the things that you're seeing is that the, the, the Chinese are, are pulling away from the Americans. That for, for much of the past 10 years, U.S. and China exports and imports mirrored each other in Africa, and they were largely oil-based. Uh, the Chinese now are exporting more products to to Africa and they're importing a wider array of minerals and they're importing a wider array of products even more and more finished products uh, from Africa of course that's what's causing controversy in places like South Africa and Ethiopia where they're exporting low-end manufacturing there but nonetheless we're seeing a, a slight difference and that was in the uh, general accounting office report so if you go to my Twitter feed you'll see the discussion that I had with Winslow along with those graphics let's go to uh, point number three improved cord- Coordination between U.S. government agencies and develop a comprehensive interagency strategy for increased investment in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, what this means, Cobus, a couple weeks ago at the Center for American Progress, actually a couple months ago at the Center for American Progress, there was a panel there. And on this panel, they pointed out that when uh, a, a government... In Africa, wants to do business with with the Chinese government. They basically have a one stop shop. They can, you know, they go to their counterpart. You know, the defense minister talks to the defense minister, the trade minister talks to the trade minister, and more or less the entire Chinese government is at their disposal. In the United States, it's not the same. The State Department, the Commerce Department, the Treasury Department, all of them work independently of one another. And so, this was one of the the pieces of feedback that we got from Ambassador David Shin and also a number of other people at that. center for american progress discussion uh it's unlikely to me and i'm skeptical here that the american bureaucracy can reform itself because it is a massive massive huge bureaucracy and it is not centralized in the same way that the chinese are what are your thoughts on this
1: yeah, and I mean, I think in addition, it also, the idea of centralizing the bureaucracy, I mean, that, that is difficult to do in the first place, but it also is kind of counter to American political culture, right? I mean, the independence of these indep- of these different agencies, I mean, that that carries a certain amount of value in the American system, as I
0: understand it. It does. Um, number four, increase the presence of U.S. foreign commercial service officers in sub-Saharan Africa to help U.S. companies navigate the business climate in the region, uh, and that actually actually goes for Yeah, so you're saying that this is one of the key points is that in, I think, five or six of the top 10 fastest growing economies in Africa, they don't have any uh, FCSOs, which are Foreign Commercial Service Officers. Those are the people that facilitate trade between uh, Africa and the United States. They work with the paperwork. They help facilitate partnerships and whatnot. Uh, They're simply not there. And this is where I'm going to center in on kind of how – what the discrepancy between the Americans and the Chinese are. In the last – FOCAC summit, the the China's uh, China-Africa summit, the forum on China-Africa cooperation, they announced a $20 billion partnership or loans for China and, and also business investments and aid for, I'm sorry, for Africa. The Chinese are putting out $20 billion to facilitate business. And here is a U.S. senator begging the Commerce Department to add five or six more people. I mean,
1: yeah, no, I, that I, is so that's mar- what I don't get. <laughs> it is
0: an absolutely remarkable difference that he's saying. We right now, I think there are fewer commercial. I think you brought this statistic up that there are fewer commercial service officers in in Africa than there are in Hong Kong, and 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 it really is remarkable. And this is this is the ultimate reflection of how the U.S. Commerce Department views its ties to Africa is that they're not willing to put the resources. And here you have a U.S. senator literally begging for it. Last two points very quickly. increase support for agencies that provide financing to encourage U.S. commercial engagements overseas, mitigate investment risks, and generate a profit for American taxpayers. Interesting. Um, nothing too controversial there. And then here, num- point number six, engage the African diaspora community in the United States to strengthen economic ties. That one is a Is a card that is pulled right from the Chinese playbook because the Chinese all over the world have been so successful, whether it's in Malaysia, in Indonesia, uh, in in, in Africa, in, in Bolivia, of really leveraging the immigrant Chinese community for partnerships and also for business.
1: Yeah, you've seen. Um, there's been some African governments who are trying to do the same thing. There is, I think, Ethiopia um, launched what they called the a diaspora bond system, where they, um, where you can actually buy Ethiopian government bonds if you, if you're an Ethiopian who lives over, lives overseas, um, and they use that to, to, you know, kind of to pull in a little bit more money from the diaspora as well. Um, so I wanted to ask you um, one of the points that's actually not raised by Koons um, was something that I. I just happened on um, in a report by the Heritage Foundation, which is obviously a, a very Republican-dominated, quite right-wing kind of think tank, and they were complaining that. The U.S. lacks um, a certain kind of tax agreements with most African countries, which means that African, that American um, companies who invest in African countries risk being taxed twice, like risk being taxed both in in the African country and in the U.S. Like, is this just, is this a, a, you know, a a real issue or is this kind of Republican anti-tax kind of ideology?
0: What's interesting about the Heritage Foundation is when they talk about U.S. domestic politics. They are, to me, just a bunch of... Frickin' loons, you know. But when they actually go overseas and some of their international analysis is quite balanced. Uh, so so in this particular case on that report, I thought it was very interesting as well. I don't have any particular insights on taxation. But it would not surprise me that there is this inconsistency. And it's in part because, you know, Africa as a foreign policy you know, specialty within the U.S. State Department and within the executive branch of the United States uh, has been neglected. Um, You know, we've seen for the past 10 years since 9-11, Latin and South America have been neglected. And that's actually been an opening for China as China now has moved into the Caribbean Basin. They moved much more aggressively into South and Central America for resources. And South and Central American leaders have complained bitterly that the United States just isn't paying attention. And when the U.S. doesn't pay attention, it doesn't develop comprehensive policies. And I think that's what Kuhn is asking for here, is to finally pay attention. The the Americans have been paying attention to Europe, to Russia, and to China. Uh, And much of the rest of the world has been neglected. Now, that's starting to change with, you know, Obama's pivot to Asia. Um, But Africa still is not, you know, from my reading of it, is not top of the agenda. Um, It's difficult probably to get, you know, the Treasury Secretary's time to talk about Africa and the Commerce Secretary to devote a lot of attention to Africa. And as a result, I think that's the opening for the Chinese. Coons is one of the only guys who's actually saying this. One of the things I think is interesting, and you and I pointed this out when we saw, when Brautigam and Ambassador Shin commented to the, I think it was a House International Relations Committee, not the Senate, but the House, was how kind of moronic, stupid, basic, arrogant, a lot of the questions coming from the congressman was. Um, And that's to me how far behind America is in evolving its policy. And so I'm not bashing America for any particular reason. I don't have an edge against my own country. That's not what it is. I think their policy when it comes to Africa has been neglected. And as a result, I think the Americans have a difficult time understanding the fact that they are no longer necessarily the default go-to power. And that's what we're seeing in, in Africa. Let me give you the final thoughts on this topic before we move on to the next one.
1: Well, um, you know, what was very interesting for me is I I recently saw an interview with Donna Usthäuser, who is the, she's the president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in South Africa. Um, And she was saying that um, the U.S. is focused, so far, the U.S. is focused on improving diplomatic relationships, while China is focused on strengthening commercial diplomacy. And in the coming years, we'll see the U.S. shifting more of its efforts towards commercial diplomacy. So there is this kind of weird... own there that, that they might be following China's lead, although I'd be very surprised if that actually, you know, if that might just be her, her opinion. Um, you know, it, it'll be very interesting to watch. I think the issue is that I think the U.S. has limited time, um, you know, kind of to really, to really kind of like jump in there. You know, kind of I think, I think the opportunities are being snapped up left and right, not only by China itself, but by Brazil. Brazil is working its, its kind of Portuguese connections very hard in parts of Africa. Um, by South Africa itself, you know, who is very aggressively um, expanding, and by a bunch of other countries like South Korea, for example. So, you know, so the, the time might be limited.
0: There was a lot of coverage last week on this. The headlines were, were very dire. Uh, Global Post, U.S. losing ground to China on Africa trade investment, says Senator, and then basically more and more, uh, let's see, Senator, this is USA Today, Senator pushes to expand trade with sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, you know, time is running out. So I think that is very, interesting as well. So, you know, it's good to see this. It's good to see this discussion happening in the United States. I hope that it happens faster because it only benefits Africa if there are engaged players. And that means that it gives Africans more choice and, and, and choice in this case is a good thing. Okay. Let's move on to our second topic and and I'm just really really excited about this. I was, you know, Cobus. when you pick the topics every week and you know, you sent me an academic paper, I was just like, ugh. You know, to read another (laughs) academic paper. But in this one, I was really surprised. So let me tell you a little bit about Madison Condon. You know, in her bio, this is from uh, last year. Uh, She's uh, a candidate uh, at the Harvard Law School and the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy uh, for a JD, uh, and MALD. I'm not sure what an uh, MALD. It's a Masters of some kind. And she wrote a paper. Yeah. Uh, she wrote a paper on uh, that's titled "China in Africa: What the Policy of Non-Intervention Adds to the Western Development Dilemma." Uh, first question: Why did this one make some make some noise last week in particular? Do you know?
1: Well, I think a part of it was that um, you know, just just in, in, in um, China-Africa circles it was posted,
0: Deborah Broutingham posted it on, oh. her, on her blog, which always like, well, adds a lot of attention. Yeah. Okay, well that, then that explains it. So, let me frame out what her kind of thesis is, and then Kobus, you can kind of flesh it out. So basically what she's saying is that, you know, the, the fact that the Chinese don't put any kind of conditionalities on their, on their financing to African governments, and, and that Comes in stark contrast to the West, which for decades has made basically, you know, aid to any specific government conditional on democracy reforms, human rights, you know, open markets, liberal economic reforms, you know, the list of things that they've wanted, good governance, and and, and the Chinese now have come in and said basically, that's not our thing, because the Chinese have a long-held policy of non-intervention that dates back to the Mao Zedong era uh, and Zhou Enlai, and and the idea is is that it's non-interference in the internal affairs of another country, and it is a deeply held Chinese philosophy, in part rooted in the fact that they don't want anybody messing with them. So in order to be intellectually consistent, the Chinese say, we don't want you messing with us, so therefore we will not mess with you. And, and they really feel like they cannot break that policy because the minute that they overtly break that policy, it opens up the opportunity for uh, countries like the United States and even the United Nations Security Council To comment on, place, on issues like Tibet Taiwan, Mongolia Xinjiang, Kashgar All of these very very sensitive issues That the Chinese want to make sure stay Outside of its borders So here she says that with the fact that the Chinese now are putting billions of dollars into African governments, billions of dollars into development, uh, in fact, outlending the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund in some cases, then the, it, you know, the Western aid agenda doesn't look quite as appealing. So Cobus, pick it up from there
1: yeah I think another thing that she says that I think is pretty is pretty sharp and pretty good to say is that despite the fact that that, that western aid um, tends to take a very a, a, a very moralistic kind of view over their own kind of work in Africa and they tend to frequently see themselves as as, as you know possessing some kind of like you know holding the light of morality you know kind of under their arms basically um, they actually don't have a lot of a lot of proof that their aid model has actually improved good governance or improved democracy and frequently in the cases where it has it was simply because the governments uh, the African governments at, in, in question wanted to move in that direction anyway um, you know so it was, it's almost impossible to use aid uh, as a lever to get a, an inherently undemocratic African government to become somehow more democratic, um, and I think that you know, and and so she also then says like so in in. As part of that, the way that, that the Chinese investment tends to in, in, increase economic complexity in African countries and make African countries richer, that tends to have uh, sometimes a, you know, a, a, a beneficial
0: effect. And that's what surprised me most about this. And this is when you know you, the, the smile started coming to my face reading her, her paper, was oftentimes implicit in the criticism of the Chinese no-strings-attached policy, which is flawed up and down north to south, east to west, in many ways. Uh, I mean, it's certainly open to criticism. You and I both agree on that. But oftentimes when you hear the West or the aid industry and the aid business and aid workers criticizing it, um, it is this implication that, well, the Western way is working. And so let me read a quote from, from, from her writing. This kind of supports what you were saying. She says, Over the decades, governments following academic debates have swung aid emphasis from infrastructure and manufacturing to rural development programs to structural adjustment to the promotion of good governance to use to the use of bottom-up mechanisms and to microfinance programs. Each time a theory is pursued with enthusiasm and each time the failings of the approach are quickly exposed. This latest round of donor emphasis on liberalization, privatization, structural adjustment, and good governance has not proven to be any more successful than the previous regimes. There she said it. I mean, and you know, one of the things that's so interesting, Cobus, is there is almost – I mean, except for these – you know, buried in these kind of academic papers – there's no public criticism of the aid business. There's no, I mean, William Easterly, who was a professor at NYU, he had a, uh, a blog which he stopped called Aid Watch, and that's not there. Uh, so for her, finally, you know, that the emperor doesn't wear any clothes, to me, is, is rather, rather remarkable, and the fact that you don't see this discussion out there. So I think, again, this is not to come in defense of the Chinese, but it's to say that the Western system has not delivered to the promises that it's made, as she points out, each trend, each fad and aid is never lived up to the promise.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, kind of. I think, uh, you know, Dambisa Moyo obviously has made a you know, pretty much a career yeah. out of air, out of criticizing aid, yeah. but you know, kind of, it's 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 not nearly as 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 the critic, criticism isn't nearly as strong as it should be. Um, I think there's there's two really important things. I think she lifts out, and I think that are that are major blind spots in Western discussions of Africa. One is that I think Western countries have no idea, no idea how Incredibly destructive structural adjustment has been in Africa. Like, that zero idea about the kind of the, the impacts that that's World Bank driven and IMF driven structural adjustment had in a country like Nigeria. For, so, for example, like in Nigeria, people, you know, Nigeria had, all, had a whole film industry a conventional you know kind of film sets and film cameras kind of film industry within literally a year two years after structural adjustment it was gone like all of like the, the television and film industry in, in in Nigeria was gone so literally people in Nigeria had nothing to watch on tv and in in you know kind of and the, they ended up shooting, starting to shoot movies simply on little camcorders and sometimes on their phones and then you know grew another like very very cheap very interesting and Bizarre kind of film industry from that So, you know, kind of that is Imagine in, imagine America Suddenly waking up to no TV I mean, it's just the, the level of and, and, and at the same time Food riots and the bank collapsing And everything, you know So the level of disruption come, come that, that Africa saw in the, in the 90s I think is not taken into account, um, you know, kind of in the West. Well, well, and in the second place, I think they also don't take into account simply the, the weight of poverty in Africa. And, and you know, so so the West being, like, just shocked, shocked that, that African governments and the Chinese tend to put, you know, kind of economic development before human rights, they don't take into account how incredibly destructive to human rights poverty actually is. Um, you know, I, I completely, you know, from, from that perspective, I completely understand the Chinese the Chinese model
0: and, and there's something very interesting as well here to talk about. Let's talk about effectiveness in corruption and accountability. So and, and again, I spent time. I'm very familiar with the aid business in in much of Africa. I'm very familiar with the USAID system. Uh, and one of the things that that uh, you know has been criticized of the Chinese for the no strings attached is that it facilitates corruption. That the money is just given to the governments. One of the interesting points that Browdigan makes in her book um, is the fact that the reason the Chinese oftentimes want to control the infrastructure projects is they want to circumvent the corrupt uh, host government infrastructure. So that is, instead of giving aid money to the Congolese government and let Joseph Kabila, you know, pocket most of it for him and then go to, you know, a little bit goes into building the road if the road ever gets built, the Chinese go directly to building their own roads. Now, this causes problems in terms of them bringing in their own labor. This causes problems in terms of the fact that we've talked about, that it riles a lot of people, that the Chinese have a lot of autonomy. But interestingly enough, it's done, according to Brautigam, with this idea of circumventing uh, some of the, the, the corrupt practices that have affected aid from the West. Now, you talk about the, the unintended consequences. Uh, for example, when, when the United States Agency for International Development really starts to support uh, you know, medical and, and, and salaries for nurses and doctors in country X, Country Y complains of a brain drain and a, and a talent drain into, from from Y into X. So, you know, these these points are the fact that the aid business over the years has done a lot to make a lot of people very very rich. I question outside of humanitarian crises whether or not it's been effective at all. It certainly has not been effective for the tune of a trillion dollars of your tax dollars and my tax dollars in the form of UN programs that have gone in there. Let me give one more quote, Cobus. Again, criticizing Western aid with the implicit idea that the West really does not have the moral ground to stand on to to criticize the Chinese. Quote, she writes, evidence suggests that conventional aid fails to promote both democracy and economic growth. One of the most popular critiques on the current aid strategy is that it comes with too many burdensome strings attached. Requirements for aid are essentially a form of central planning that swell state bureaucracies and promote inefficiency. The funds are allocated from afar by ill-informed donors that distort market forces and ignore local preferences. I just, this was fantastic in in my opinion. She just hit the nail right on the head.
1: Yeah, you know, what was another very interesting detail for me that I wasn't actually aware of, is that one point that she made, you know, obviously China gets very criticised for tied aid, you know, so all its loans is is tied to provisions that Chinese companies have to be used for all of these infrastructure projects and, you know, they get really roasted for that frequently in the West. Now, apparently, the EU is apparently considering retying its aid and they, so they, they they talk about you know kind of that. For example, if you get if you get um, money from Germany, then you have to use for, for infrastructure or for some kind of project. Then you have to use a German company to do that do that work for you. They're apparently following the Chinese lead. No, but
0: that's been Very the yeah. But aid is I mean that's nothing new in the West. I mean the you know American companies have been giving you know uh, American tractors. I mean you go, you read the Lords of Poverty. You know that was written 25 years ago, and they talk in uh, I forget the author. He's spacing my mind. His name is spacing me. But uh, he he writes the fact that you know you know companies and countries have been giving things aid to, to profit domestic constituencies back home and nothing related to the actual outcome for the for the people they're trying to help. Um, so
1: yeah, but but that was that was very frowned upon for a whole while and now actually Thai aid is actually illegal in the UK. Um, but it, it seems to be returning. It's
0: yeah. Well, this was interesting. A, this, uh, yeah, Madison Condon is her name. She she made uh, you know. She she got some notoriety by appearing on, on Deborah Braudigam's blog. Uh, she wrote a fantastic thesis. I really hope she got a great grade for this one because she really deserved it. Yeah. Um, I think if you are in the Western aid business and or you know somebody in the Western aid business, uh, please send this to them. Because one of the problems in the aid business, and it is universal, whether here where I am in Vietnam or in, in, in China, uh, actually not in China, but in Africa and particularly in the U.S. Beltway, there is this Denial about the, the the about the effectiveness of Chinese uh, economic engagement. Again, I China's foreign policy and China's aid policy deserves criticism from top to bottom. I there's I, we will dedicate a whole other show to that. I promise you. But what I'm trying to say is to support Madison's thesis here is also to say that the Western model is in trouble, and the fact that the Chinese are now coming in with an alternative and an alternative that may be more effective in some ways is something that the West needs to evaluate and the aid business needs to evaluate as well. Okay. Let's move on to our third topic. And this is a little more complicated. So Kobus, I'm actually going to kind of defer to you on this one, but uh, and it brought me back to uh, an Al Jazeera report from a couple months ago, which basically Al Jazeera went undercover in Zimbabwe. And uh, actually, was it, I don't remember if it was Zimbabwe or another country, but they showed how easy it was to – actually, it was Zimbabwe. And they demonstrated with undercover cameras how easy it was to pilfer and rip off Africa, and here we are talking about uh, another instance of, of that happening, and how so much of Africa's billions and billions and billions are disappearing unaccounted for. A group called One Hundred Reporters, uh, New Journalism for a New Age, they issued a report uh, called "Disappearing Diamonds" and the case of this mysterious uh, Airbus jet. It's an Airbus three hundred and nineteen CJ, and it's this jet that's basically a corporate version of an A three hundred and twenty, and it flies around. Mysterious mysteriously to, to capitals all over, and it, it, it flies to airports that have very, very low security. And this is in case in, 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 in Zimbabwe as well. And what 100 Reporters is alleging is that this jet and the people who are on this jet are smuggling out huge amounts of diamonds. Uh, these are the blood diamonds. And these are the blood diamonds from some of Zimbabwe's biggest mines that were once controlled by the likes of De Beers. And and one man in particular, his name is uh, Xu Jing Hao, and he is related to uh, the China International Fund. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that correct, uh, Kobus? Yes, as far as I understand. And uh, the China International Fund is this very nefarious, mysterious group that's out of Hong Kong, if I remember correctly. The Economist did an article on them a couple years ago, and they are a very important player in the financing of Chinese operations and Chinese investments in in Africa. Uh, So this is a very big allegation to make because the China International Fund is a semi private, semi public uh, entity linked directly to the Chinese government. Um, but at the same time, in allegations that it's ferrying out hundreds of millions of dollars, if I'm correct, uh, of diamonds from Zimbabwe, implies that we know that in Zimbabwe corruption is a serious problem, but it makes a direct connection to the Chinese. Not surprising to me that wherever you're going to have money, you're going to have this type of corruption. But, Cobus, Tell me more about this.
1: Yeah, this, I have to say, like, I feel a little out of my depth because this is so complicated. Like, um, you know, we hope to actually, we you know, friends of the show are, are researchers who actually do, you know, specialize in the China International Fund. And we hope to do an all-China International Fund uh, episode in the future. But for, you know, when we, if you refer to the, the 100 Reporters article, um one thing there's a few things to keep in mind. In the first place, Marange, which is uh, which is the, the the big diamond field in Zimbabwe. That is, is seen as one of the world's richest diamond fields. Um, they're talking about this is an estimated eight hundred billion dollars worth of diamonds in the ground in Marange, and they're talking at very high yields. So they're talking about a thousand carats per 100 tons of, of rock. So that's very high yield. Um the, for a long time, De beers oper- had the beers had the had the concession. But one thing you have to remember is that diamonds actually aren't very rare. Like my my sister's a gold is a goldsmith, and so she works a lot with precious stones. And she has told me many times that diamonds are actually common. Um, they're, they're much more common than, for example, emeralds or rubies. Um, so the the reason why diamonds are so valuable is because because it, it's a it's a manufactured Scarcity, so the Beers tends to buy or to tends to put concessions on these very rich fields if they find them, and they just keep them and they don't mine them. Um, you know, kind of just they're very much keeping them in, in 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 reserve for the future, and because because there's a lot more diamonds in the world than you know that than they can sell profitably. So um, so after so when their concession run ran out, the Zimbabwean government took it over because they were upset that it's not being mined and they were also upset that. De Beers wasn't setting up uh, a relationship with them the way that they did in Botswana. One reason I think is because the Moldavian government was so notorious. I think De Beers didn't want to be painted with that brush. Um, so then it, the concession went over to uh, to China's Son gol as far as I understand, um, which is related to to, uh, to the China International Fund. And they're also heavily invested in Angola. Um, so, and now... There's, from there on, it becomes incredibly complicated. One of the one of the issues is that the the finance minister of Zimbabwe is, is saying that there is uh, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of, of profits that they're not seeing. They don't know where it is. That is being refuted by the actual Zimbabwean army. So there's there's a fight within the Zimbabwean government, um, and the uh, and the 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 report is saying that the army is channeling money to keeping uh, President Robert Ngar- in power, and also the China International Fund has directly funded the secret police in Zimbabwe.
0: And they, they quote 100 reporters' quotes a, a watchdog group, and I, I don't have the name, but I have the URL uh, pacweb.org, P A C W E B dot O R G saying that uh, an estimated $2 billion in undeclared precious stones have left Zimbabwe and calling that that uh, the biggest single plunder of diamonds since Cecil Rhodes was there. So that's a, that's a big deal. But again, what it points out, and I think we talked about this in our last week's episode when we were talking about, you know, ivory and the Chinese and and, and what the awful things that are happening to, to, to African elephants and rhinos. Um, and yet... You know, here is another instance of Africa's natural resources being plundered, and it brings to mind here that who who where does the blame lie here? So the corruption, definitely the China International Fund, if they are in fact um, involved, deserve all of the you know all of the the uh, you know the criticism. But you know, at the end of the day, Robert Mugabe to me is ultimately responsible here. And uh, so much of that money is going into his pocket, most likely, and going into his crony's pocket. um, It is, you know, the blame should be spread thick and far. But it is really, again, a a, a testament to the lack of of governance uh, in too many African states.
1: Yeah, and for the record, China Sanlangol has, has strenuously denied these allegations, and um, you know. So, and you know, if, if you read the report, you'll see that they also deny these allegations in the comments thread below, um, and that say they they weren't contacted by hundred reporters, and, and so on and so on. So, you know, kind of, I mean, it's not it's not surprising that they de- denied, but then you know, they did deny it. I think it's also for me, this is and this is a, a bit of a bugbear for me, and it. Actually relates back to Madison Condon's article as well is that I I think this is a, a, a proof of how weak sanctions actually is as a as a tool in order to to you know get countries to be more democratic like you know few countries have as many sanctions against them as Zimbabwe um, Robert Mugabe can almost travel nowhere you know because he might get arrested at the airport um, and yet. You know he's not deterred, not deterred. You know the people who are suffering in Zimbabwe from from the the, world, the kind of Western sanctions um, regime are poor Zimbabweans. The government unaffected. So, you know, I think, I think it's, it's just sanctions just simply, for me, sanctions just
0: don't work. And it also points out the fact that, you know, being able to report on these types of subjects is extremely difficult, uh, in part because, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult to get, if not impossible, to get people to speak on the record. So what 100 Reporters has done is rather than try to get people to speak on the record about it, they followed the case of this Airbus, uh, again, with the call sign VPBEXA319. And, and they have this interesting infographic of tracking where this plane has gone, uh, you know, from Angola to Singapore to Hong Kong. Uh, and then, you know, and in, in what makes this plane unique that they point out is that not only can it carry – up to 18 passengers, and it's a full Airbus, so it's a big thing. It's a basically a hotel in the skies, they write, but it can also carry cargo, and that's what makes it interesting, and when it flies you know, in, you know into these airports um, and it doesn't get checked the same way that other people do, then, then bad things can happen, so they do it. Now, you know, the research on this is difficult, uh, but I also, it's hard to tell whether their methods are being done right. So, you know, if you read the HRW report at first glance, you might've thought that was great until you had, you know, people like Barry Saltman and Yen Rung coming out and saying, well, they didn't do this, 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 and this. So Kobus, I think you make a good point that we might want to reserve judgment on their conclusions until we've had some people check their methodology and until maybe there's some corroborating evidence that comes out against it as well. Um, you know, give us some final, thoughts on what you think in terms of this you know there's this whole kind of invisible world that exists out there that mere normal people like us mere mortals like us don't see um these are the you know the people who fly in vpbex a319 these are the people who who work below you know these are the arm traders the diamond traders these are you know this is where we're awful the underbelly of globalization happens um what what's your thought on that
1: yeah, I think even if you're not particularly interested in diamond smuggling, then this article is really worthwhile just to look at the the impact of tax shelters um, in, like, the Virgin Islands, for example, um, and Jersey, you know, off the shore of, of, of the UK, um, in, in facilitating these kind of under the radar kind of economic networks. It's amazing how complicated these companies are. Everything is owned by a shell company that's owned by a shell company. It's um, you know, just mind-boggling. At the same time, I think it's really important to keep. You know, the China International Fund. One needs to keep an eye on. They are massive. Like, um, and they're, they're very heavily invested in the US. Interestingly, they own a ton of of uh, of um, the real estate in Manhattan, among others, the J.P. Morgan Chase Building. That's right across the road from from the the New York Stock Exchange. So they are a very big company, and for a company that size to be so under. under Underexplored and so under the radar. That itself, I think,
0: one should look at big companies. You know, kind of one should look at at the kind of business they do. And on that issue, I'm so glad you brought up the question of the the tax shelters. Uh, The show, I'm just—I just looked it up here. It's on Al Jazeera. It's called "People in Power." That's the documentary series that they have, and it's called "How to Rob Africa." Why does the Western world feed Africa with one hand while taking from it with the other? And that's where they go in with undercover cameras, and they are able to show how. Easy it is to set up off of uh, you know it, it, both in Zimbabwe and in Mauritania. How easy it is for you to set up the tax shelter to basically you know, funnel money, corrupt money, uh, dirty money out of Africa. And, uh, and so I think that was, it was an excellent, excellent, uh, show. I'll put that again in the show notes this week, uh, for our page. Uh, so Kobus we've, we've gone on uh, very long today. We've had three incredible topics. Uh, it's been a fascinating discussion. Of course, uh, you, the audience, the listener, we'd love to hear from you as always on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa project. We were over 40,000 fans now. Uh, we're going to try and get to 50,000 very soon. But most of the people on this page um, are students and are people obviously engaged in this topic. We've got some great discussions going on. Uh, the vast majority of our population on our Facebook community comes from Africa. So I guess in some ways, they're going back to the beginning part of our conversation. They're qualified to speak on this because they're black African, right?
1: Well, you know, kind of I feel like feel free to slap us around. Feel free to criticize us. Say anything you want. You know, That's kind great. of like we we just love the we just love the conversation. We definitely and do. uh you know kind of yeah, you know, kind of we we and we're trying to widen it as as wide as we can.
0: That's exactly it. So uh and share the page with your friends. Hey, if you'd like to to listen to the show, we're on Stitcher, we're on SoundCloud, we're on uh, iTunes of course, you can look for us. Just go search for China, Africa, when you're there, leave a comment for us because uh we'd love to hear from you you know vote rate on the show positive negative uh but the more people that participate in that we get uh, it helps us kind of make us more visible to other uh to other folks on itunes as well and and, uh, we'd love we just want more people to talk about this subject kobus if people want to follow what you're reading and what you're following what's the best place for them to to look you up
1: I'm updating our Facebook page regularly, and I'm also on Twitter at Stalinesque. That's
0: S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Facebook as well. I put my name in brackets there, and I get into fights with uh, lots of folks like Mark Houston and, uh, and some other guys out there, but it's fun. I mean, it's really this, uh, I enjoy it. Uh, and I think they get a kick out of it too, but it's a great way to have a good conversation. So you can find me on Facebook, and I'm also at Twitter at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D. So we're back every Sunday with a new edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until next week, we'll talk to you later.